This week, one of the largest private radiology companies agreed to pay a half-million-dollar fine after a 2021 ransomware attack. This attack during the height of COVID-19 led to the exposure of sensitive information from nearly 200,000 patients. The Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, cited in her agreement with U.S. Radiology the company's failure to remediate a vulnerability. In particular, it was CVE 2021-20016. So here's the interesting thing. U.S. Radiology was unable to install the firmware patch for the zero day because its hardware was at the end of life stage and was no longer supported. The company had planned to replace the hardware in July of 2021, but the project was delayed due to competing priorities and resource restraints. The New York Attorney General's office said once a threat actor gained access to the VPN, they leveraged about 101 additional credentials to access various network data folders over the following week. The Attorney General's office continued by saying that the threat actor could capture the username, password, and other session information stored on the server through the process known as SQL injection. But the state of New York found that nearly 200,000 patients had their names, dates of birth, patient IDs, dates of service, provider names, types of radiology exams, diagnoses, and health insurance ID numbers exposed. In particular, this data also included driver's license information and passport numbers, as well as social security numbers for 82,000 New Yorkers. Attorney General James concluded with a statement. U.S. radiology failed to protect New Yorkers' data and was vulnerable to attack because of outdated equipment. In the face of increasing cyber attacks and more sophisticated scams to steal private data, I urge all companies to make necessary upgrades and security fixes to their computer hardware and systems. I mention this story because healthcare seems young in terms of software development life cycle processes. It's the latter part, you know, the part about remediation and end of life. The problem for medical device manufacturers is often getting that product certified through the FDA in the US and other agencies in Europe. After that, they typically don't update their software and they apparently don't consider the end of life on the device either. In a moment, I'll share a story about devices that have been discontinued or at least found no longer necessary in healthcare organizations, then sold on secondary marketplaces like eBay. These devices may not have personally identifying information or PII, but they might contain information that could allow a secondary purchaser to find their way back onto your network. And who knows what they'll do once they have that. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing end of life for OT devices and how their purchase on a secondary market can provide the tokens and pre-shared keys that can be used to gain access to your network.
recently attended Sector 2023. That's Canada's largest InfoSec conference. If you haven't been, I encourage you to check it out. It's run by the same people who run Black Hat, but it has a distinctly Canadian flavor and, I must say, a lot more engagement. Remember LineCon, where you learn things standing in line? I learned a lot just in the hallways. In general, I find the talks at Sector to be much more technical, just the way I like them. So, of course, I attended a talk on medical devices. And I quickly learned that there's often no process or procedure to delete network information once a device has been declared end of life. That's not good, since there are tens of thousands of these devices in use today. So, of course, I had to speak to the presenter. My name is uh, Daryl Hyland, and I'm a uh, principal security researcher of OT-IoT. Uh, for Rapid7. Rapid7 is a, uh, a security products company and service company. So Rapid7 produces a series of uh, tools and solutions to help organizations manage their uh, security environment, covering everything from uh, threat and vulnerability uh, management, detection response, application uh, security. Uh, we also have an entire uh, fleet of services around penetration testing, covering everything from Wi-Fi network, web application, all the way to uh, red team and IoT pen testing. OT is perhaps one of my new favorite topics these days, and it's the subject of my other podcast, Error Code. I'm wondering if Daryl has traditionally done pen testing on OT, and I'm wondering if there's a lot of concern in general in the OT space today. Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern uh, in in the OT space. Uh, you know, theoretically, in the past, we all kind of uh, didn't think much of OT. It was all segmented off, wasn't supposed to be attached to anything, but we're in a changing world where people are trying to move data historians into the cloud and various other things, and they want to mesh their networks all together. So now they have to start thinking about how does our OT technology, our SCADA environments uh, potentially be impacted by that? Uh, and how do we better secure them? So, yes. So one area of concern is medical devices. And there's the whole consumer side, but we're going to focus more on what you would find in a health delivery organization. Typically, OT devices haven't been connected. Now there's more access being granted to them, and often with access being carte blanche. One area in particular that Daryl focused on was infusion pumps. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, so when you get into the, the, the whole medical world, um, I've done, uh, I have a long uh, lured past of doing pen testing. So I've done uh, a lot of pen testing in hospitals and organizations. And when you start thinking about those environments and the uh, medical or the when I say medical environment, I'm speaking about the environment where critical care is given. This is where patients would be hooked up to infusion pumps and medical devices and all of those type of things. Historically, there hasn't been a lot of good segmentation in those organ in those areas. So the business network of the medical hospital and the critical care were all kind of attached together. So when we start thinking about that uh, and we start thinking about the potential impact of patients that have uh, devices connected to them for their health and safety and administration of uh, medical care, uh, it, it becomes quite scary and, and very concerning. Um, so uh, that's what that's what kind of led to the whole research project uh, around medical devices, uh, mainly infusion pumps. It was about how do I get to that point where I really have a good understanding of the medical environment? 
I have the historical experience doing uh, pen testing, but now what about medical technology and how is it impacted? So the goal of the research project was to expand my knowledge and help Rapid7 expand its knowledge in medical device technology and security. So by bringing network capability to these devices, I'm wondering if the lack of segmentation within the HDO is an artifact of that, that there's a rush to get these devices connected in some way, and there isn't really a process where they're looking at the logical segmentation, let alone the physical segmentation of any of these devices. I think it was a progression uh, from, you know, network technology comes into the hospital decades ago. Okay. Uh, and then we progress forward. We had the business aspect of it. We have the, uh, the ability to record, uh, taking care of records, patient medical records, all of that type of stuff. And then we have uh, medical devices that are on the network. And through the progression over time, we start making the uh, devices network aware for many purposes. It's for, you know, management, it's for gathering data as like it feeds back into the medical uh, electronic medical records. uh, So we can keep track of, you know, hey, doses like infusion pumps, doses that were set for a patient, how long were they on it? All this data can feed back into the medical record system uh, for maintaining that historical environment. Um, and we, we, we kind of progressed from not having any devices on a network to just gradually to the point where we wake up one day and it's like, oh, wait a second. We have a lot of critical care devices that are attached to a network, and those networks are not segmented. They're not maintained. We really don't think about it. Um, and, and, and that's where we're at right now. And how do we move forward? And I have to state a lot of um, hospitals and organizations are aware of this and they're kind of moving forward around that segmentation. When I was doing pen testing six plus years ago, I rarely seen segmentation, but now it is a topic that they're all aware of. They're all moving in that direction. And then they're also trying to get a a big understanding of what's the risk of these medical appliances on the network and trying to figure out how do we manage these from a vulnerability standpoint? How do we manage these from you know, support capability, especially infusion pumps. You just don't know where they're at. They, they literally can be scattered all over the place. So one individual device can end up anywhere within that hospital that's, or multiple floors of a hospital, multiple areas of different hospitals and stuff like that. So there's this whole level of complexity uh, that comes into play when it comes to medical devices, especially these, most of these medical devices are mobile. They don't always stay in the same location. So this brings up an interesting point. How do you get access to an infusion pump if you're a researcher that wants to do a pen test on it? Well, uh, the thing with infusion pumps is, um, uh, and uh, a lot of medical devices are very much like the old uh, typical OT skate environment. You don't buy something and then three years throw it away. It's not like that. So they stay around for a while. Uh, so um, they easily go to secondary market. So you can get your hands on secondary market devices. Often the software is kept up on them in the hospitals. At least it should be kept up on them. So when they get ready to get rid of it, you can go to secondary market and purchase these devices. 
and just because they're in a secondary market doesn't mean they're not being used everywhere else also. So they may be used for another five, six years. And based on the financial status of a specific organization or hospital, they may keep these devices for much longer than uh, certain hospitals that have the financial means to update the newest and greatest stuff. So there, you go to secondary market and you purchase devices. And from there, you can lab them up uh, uh, as I've done with two or three different models and get a chance to play with them and work with them and learn to understand them. Um, I also, uh, I can't mention who, but uh, I also worked with a couple medical uh, organizations who gave me access to talk to uh, biomedical uh, managers that run biomedical networks. I've sat down with uh, biomedical teams that actually do maintenance and repair and test the gear and recalibrate it and gone through all of that with them. Uh, and I've talked to uh, hospital security people on this project. So I've had a chance to not only work with the medical devices, but also sat down and talked to uh, hospital and medical personnel about these devices and what it means to them and what are they concerned with uh, and where do they see this going? So it's been a, a very broad research project uh, besides just looking at hardware, uh, I, which I think is very important. We always need to go beyond just hacking on the hardware. Let's talk about the big picture and how that plays out. So I want to briefly do a tangent on the secondary market. It didn't occur to me that there was such a robust area within some health delivery organizations to pursue secondary devices. The FDA recently changed its guidance around new devices, such as the manufacturers have to declare how updates will be accomplished and what that end of life cycle will look like. But the secondary market, that's going to complicate things because there are thousands of devices out there today that won't fall under this new guidance. The way I see secondary market, well, there, there, there's different components of the secondary market. There are uh, medical appliance companies that actually will purchase devices and completely refurb them and recalibrate them and do the whole nine yards uh, in those cases. And then there's the eBay version of that. Now, the high-end ones will actually sell stuff on eBay too. But you can buy parts and functioning units, and it's a cheap way to get repair parts because the devices – because most of the devices, from what I understand, when they go into the hospital, the, the hospital's biomedical teams, uh, biomedical appliance teams are going to maintain the gear. That means they're going to patch it. They're going to repair it. They're going to upgrade it. Uh, they're going to calibrate it. So pulling parts from one device and putting them in another device is not, in my opinion, problematic. It's just a matter of are they calibrated? Are they tested? Are they in compliancy uh, to function properly? Uh, and long as an organization is doing that, does it really matter where they particularly get these devices? Um, I don't think it is. I, I, I think that's a great means for devices that aren't necessarily being sold by the manufacturer anymore. Because a, a manufacturer, even though he may quit selling a specific model, will often continue maintain it and maybe need to maintain it for a given period of time by the FDA. These devices are already going into the secondary market probably within three or four years or even sooner. Uh, I've actually seen pumps that are currently being marketed by manufacturers on secondary market already. So it may be, you know, an organization, a medical organization goes defunct, goes out of business. Where do these devices end up? Uh, they go into secondary market and are purchased by uh, 
hospitals or organizations that don't have uh, endless funds. They can buy them on secondary market, calibrate them, get them working, put them into operation and, and do it uh, much cheaper uh, than it would cost uh, to buy them brand new. I hope that explains it. It's my vision of it from what I've seen. I have not talked to an organization or a hospital that has gone through the process of purchasing on secondary market, but it seems from what I've looked at out there uh, on eBay and the companies that sell on eBay and other uh, third-party companies that are available over the internet that are selling used equipment, seems to be a very robust market. Okay, so Daryl's obtained his infusion pump and he brought it home. So there's generally two methods. One is destructive, where you tear apart the device and you actually peel back all the layers on the chip and you try to understand what that chip is doing. Then you don't have the device anymore. The other is non-destructive. And that's what Daryl chose. So yeah, so when it comes to trying to get what I refer to as uh, firmware or the data that's actually stored on the device. Uh, there's the destructive method. I just tear the thing apart, pull the flash memory chips off and off I go. The other one is the non-destructive. I want it still working after the fact. Uh, one, one of the examples is uh, was the Baxter infusion pump, which is, uh, I have to put all the, uh, uh, say great things about Baxter. They were uh, great to work with. Uh, excellent organization and we worked with them pretty closely when we uh, published several advisories on their product but as an example the they has a battery unit that's also wi-fi so you can upgrade the units to newer latest greatest wi-fi but just changing out the battery it plugs into the back of the device uh, the battery would actually end up containing data like wi-fi credentials but the main unit would too so anytime you'd stick a battery on there it would transfer the data to the new battery so a non-destructive means was to put a shim between the battery and the unit uh, so that you can tap into those communication lines and listen to them. So when you powered it up and it transferred that data over to the battery, you could capture it. That's a non-destructive method. Uh, on the uh, Alaris pump, very similar. Uh, there is a uh, console plug in the back of the pump where you can hook maintenance software where they go through calibration and testing and all that stuff. From there, you can also do backups of all the configurations and data off the pump. Uh, they, they, in this case, they, within the application, maintain security of that data. That means you can't see the raw data like keys, passwords, all that stuff. Uh, and when you pull it off to store it, it has you encrypt it. So versus coming out and coming out and figure out how to crack that encryption or figure out what the encryption was, we just listened to the communication between the software on your desktop and the device when it actually backed it up. And we were able to see it come across the uh, cable in clear text and was able to gather that data. That's another example of uh, being able to uh, a non-destructive method. Um, and, then, uh, and then there's also... Uh, not completely non-destructive, but you're not going to destroy the device. And that is actually tapping into the circuit boards through uh, debug ports, things like uh, JTAG uh, de debug ports with debuggers. 
Uh, and from there, you connect into the main processors on the device and you can make requests to the device to go, give me all the firmware and it'll actually let you dump all the firmware. Um, and that's another non-destructive method. Uh, but a number of the devices don't necessarily have a simple open up the device and find a plug, plug to plug in. Sometimes it takes a little more digging into the device to figure out how do I connect to it. And that's where it gets on the edge of destructive, non-destructive. When you got to start soldering uh, wires and stuff onto a circuit board, you potentially could actually destroy the device in that process. But So one of the things that Daryl found was a pre-shared key that weren't really updated with the updates. Yeah, so so when I started this project, we, we started looking at the Baxter and the uh, BD Zolaris pump, Baxter Sigma and the BD Zolaris pump. But during this process of buying pumps and, and going through testing them and pulling data off of them to figure out how they work and all that stuff, I started noticing that there was like data on these devices that shouldn't have been there. So that's when we kind of step back after the initial phase and go, hey, let's dig a little further. It seems we have a systemic issue here. So I went out and bought a whole bunch more pumps off, off the market, secondary market, tried to get them as cheap as possible, whether it was the pump or, and then I added a third one into the mix too. I actually added a Hospera Abbott plum into the mix. So I could have three different devices, three different brands of devices instead of just the two for that phase. And we just start pulling them apart. Ever how I can get the data off of it, let's just get the data off of them. I literally destroyed a half dozen pumps in one day, just ripped them apart, pulled the chips off. Because I, I, the thing I found out, the best way to see if there's data there, buy things that are broken. There's no way anyone could have purged the data off of it in that case. <laughs> so I grabbed a bunch that way. I grabbed a bunch that were working. Just got a good example of every one of these brands of, of devices online. And we found out, I think out of the 13 devices I pulled to do this, eight of them I was actually able to pull creds for. Uh, that led to um, what I consider potentially accessible data that can be used to gain Wi-Fi access to five uh, different hospital chains. I made, I made note of it. We purged the data. We didn't keep it, uh, anything like that. It was just say, is there an issue there? Uh, the only other thing I did was to go, okay, I have this data. Who's it even belong to? Because the 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 Wi-Fi SSIDs were not necessarily completely descriptive. Sometimes they were just a series of initials, and I'm like, I have no clue who this is. Well, you can go online, and there's a online website called Wiggle, which is an entire massive database of of Wi-Fi. Everyone can put data in it, and it's like a running database of Wi-Fi SSIDs around the world. Okay, so I had to check this out for myself. Wiggle, it's really cool. It's an open source map of SSIDs that have been reported. I was looking around my neighborhood and sure enough, I could see on the map some SSIDs around me that I can also see on my laptop. So one can use this if they have already identified an SSID. They can type that in and see where in the world it is. And you can go in there and search for it and literally find out who it belongs to. And it doesn't take long. Uh, and you can narrow it down right to the hospital hospital chains. Uh, in some cases, if if the if if it's an organization that goes, hey, we're going to name all of our location Wi-Fi SSIDs slightly different. You know, it'll have initials and it'll be zero zero one zero zero two for the different APs or something like that. You can often 
narrow it down to the exact building it's in uh, because they typically just reuse them uh, when they replace it with new gear. Um, and part of that reuse, I would imagine, is going back to the original OT problem, which is you don't want somebody out in the field futzing with all that access stuff. They want it to be simple. They've got this SSID and password baked in, and now they want to hook it up and get it up and running quickly. You want it to work. So, so if you think about it, it in, in today's modern time, think about a hospital, all the different devices they have. You have all of their laptops. You have all their uh, uh, tablets that they're carrying around. You have all the infusion pumps. You have all of the uh, health monitors that hook up for uh, blood pressure and all those type of things. You go on and on and on of all the devices that are in a hospital now that are communicating via Wi-Fi. If I decide I want to change out one, the infusion pumps, um, am I going to have to go out and change the Wi-Fi credentials on thousands or even potentially tens of thousands of other devices uh, to effectively be able to switch over to something new? Or am I just going to put the same stuff that everyone's using already back on the new devices I just bought? Um, typically, the only time we would ever, and we, we did this when I worked in Fortune 500 companies too, because it's, it's nearly impossible. It's, it's very problematic to go change everything. Uh, and we used to, the only time I ever seen us switch everything over is when we were changing the entire security model. So if we decided to go from a pre-shared key to ePEEP or from standard pre-shared key stuff over to, let's say, enterprise, where we use certificates on all the devices, um, usually when we start doing something like that, then we'll do a full migration of the entire organization. Uh, and we, uh, how often do you do that? Uh, and hospitals want things always to work and they want them to be simple. So yeah, I'm just going to reuse it. So I'm curious, is this like an orchestration problem or a governance problem? What is the cost to me as an organization to have to, you know, I have a thousand infusion pumps that I just bought to set those up to match what we're already doing or go out and change 10,000 things to match something new. How, how much of a resource do I have? What's that cost to me, employees, time, effort? Uh, most of the time, a lot of organizations don't have staff, uh, effective staff, to be able to go in and make major changes like that. Uh, and even if you decide you want to make changes like that, it can take a while. Uh, I've been involved when we've made those migrations over for Wi-Fi for every machine to a different, a different thing. And it can easily take months in a large organization. I've seen it take upwards of six to nine months to migrate over. Um, the thing, is, the, the good thing is, is if you want to migrate over uh, to something new, you've decided, hey, you know, we've managed to sell all of our infusion pumps on eBay over the last six months. We didn't bother purging any of them. Now I'm a little worried. What do I do? Often uh, the, the Wi-Fi access points that are out there have multiple radios in them. And sometimes you can go in and easily spin up new radios in all of those. Uh, with new uh, new creds in them, new pre-shared keys or whatever you want to do, enterprise, certificates, whatever, and then start migrating everyone over as time permits, as you, as you have the resources. Now you're going to have you're going to have duplicates. You're going to have the, the, the new solution and the old solution in place for a while. But at some point, 
you can get rid of the old stuff. Um, but again, based on your uh, the amount of resources you have to throw at it, it could easily take six to nine months. Uh, I've seen in large organizations to be able to make a migration like that. So is it even reasonable to expect management of all these individual devices? There's still going to be a bit of cloning going on just to get it on the network quickly. And there are thousands of devices as opposed to dealing with just an individual device. Yes, yes. Uh, typically, typically, if you wanted to change out a device, you're going to have to, there's, there's probably going to have to be some kind of physical access to it. Um, and, and it varies from device to device. These, these devices that I've had in my lab, to be able to go in and go, okay, you need to change the Wi-Fi pre-share key passwords on every every Baxter infusion pump in your environment. Yeah, you're not you're not going to do that in a day. Uh, to start with these these devices, you had to have physically in front of you to do it. It couldn't be done over the network, from what I could tell. At least the older stuff doesn't mean new solutions moving forward are not going to solve that problem. Uh, but you had to do that now. Again, with a lot of these medical devices, they, they go through a biomed lab where they have to go through regular calibration and testing. To me, that's where you where I mentioned you set up two, two radios. Each, each one of your access points get spin up two radios and then make those migrations. So when it goes to the bio lab, you switch it over to the new solution. Eventually, everything's going to make it through the bio lab for testing and calibration, and you're going to get everything switched over. That's kind of how I would see the vision. Now, if you went and talked to a hospital's security teams or network teams or biomed teams, um, they may say something different. Uh, I can only imagine they probably wouldn't want to do this uh, because of the, the amount of resources you have to apply to it. So we talked about the data that's still on these devices and the general lack of a way to purge it after you no longer need the device. Is that something that needs to be built in at the beginning? Uh, it comes down to, as, as I've, I've mentioned and have said this many times, organizations need to have solid cradle-to-grave solutions for all new technologies that are brought in. In that, they need to have processes and procedures on how everything's done uh, ahead of time. You don't wait and go, hey, we need to get rid of these 10,000 devices. How are we going to do it? That should already be predetermined when the devices were acquired. So you build those solutions that cover everything from this is how we're going to deploy them. This is how we're going to maintain them. This is how we're going to do security patches of them. And this is how we're going to get rid of them at the end of life and have the documentation in place. So there is no confusion. So you know, like, hey, you need to go to the service manual and run this procedure to clean it. Um, and not wait until the end and go, where's the manuals at? How do we do this? Um, that's the wrong way to do it. So having those solutions built from the very beginning as you acquire new technologies uh, to define how a device is going to be handled, maintained, and deacquired, uh, cradle-to-grave solution, then you streamline this much better, and it becomes way less complex and complicated. Um, and, of course, that whole streamlining also may include um, contractual agreements. Not all the devices that you uh, acquire into your organization do you own. Sometimes you may lease those. So you need to have contractual agreements in place going, okay, these devices, one, need to be purged before they're ever done, before they leave our building. 
or, you know, the manufacturer or ever who you acquired these from not going to resell them. They're going to feed them into a giant metal shredder. Um, all of it done from a contractual agreement ahead of time as part of that cradle to grave solution. I'm wondering if Daryl has worked with health delivery organizations that either didn't know this or they don't have somebody who's going to be doing this in their IT department. In the case of the devices I bought online, I can only imagine. Uh, my assumption is that they sold these things off to a secondary market group, some organization that is going to get rid of them somehow. They're like, okay, we can, re we can recover the small percentage of our investment um, by selling these. And we stack them on a pallet. We sell them for weight or whatever you want to sell them. I've seen that done for products before. And out the door they go, not thinking about that these things potentially still have data. Um, I mean, we went through a phase here about a it's actually not much more than a decade ago or less than a decade ago when we started thinking about hard drives. You know, it actually made it on the news. Hey, you can buy hard drives off eBay and it contains all of your data. And everyone was like in this total state of panic and things got changed. Companies changed their procedures on how devices are sold or, dis or disposed of. Uh, a lot of times they just pull the hard drives out and feed them into a giant shredder to get rid of them uh, or, or other means. Well, we're in a different world now. So we're dealing with embedded technology. There's no hard drive in there. It's a small chip. It probably smaller than a nickel or a dime in size that's on that board. And it can, in some cases, contain upwards of 32 gigabyte of data on newer devices. So, so it's literally bigger than hard drives were 15, 20 years ago, in some cases uh, that we were dealing with. And now it's just a chip uh, and we don't think about it. We don't think that these things are storing this data. A lot of organizations have not gave that much thought. They do take into consideration security. They are thinking security. They're thinking about vulnerability, exploit, breaches to their organizations, to their hospitals. Uh, but they don't think that uh, that data, that there's data on these in some cases. They haven't really thought about that. Uh, I remember going back and looking at a whole bunch of service manuals that were like more than six years old, like eight-year-old, nine-year-old manuals for other products. And you would search the manuals and go purging the device, cleaning the device, trying to find a procedure. And all they did was tell you actually how to clean the outside of the device so you can't spread disease. There was literally nothing in the manuals uh, up until, in my opinion, the last few years uh, that covered actually removing data off these devices. So we've tossed around the term data. I wonder, are we talking about PII? Are we talking about telemetry? What sort of data did Daryl encounter? So in this case, uh, of all these three devices I looked at, I did not find uh, PII data. Um, if you look at the uh, communication packets that are sent from these devices and the data structure it's stored on there, there is space for patient name and other data about the patient, but none of these devices collect that data. They uh, assign it a patient ID. So it's basically a patient medical record number is what's assigned. 
So all of this data, because you could go in there, I, you know, I got I got captures of things like different drugs that were actually being administered. So it maintains all these logs too. So you have patient patient IDs that they assign it from patient records. You have date time stamps, and you got drugs, fentanyl, this much administered on this date for how long, that type of thing. Uh, and these things contain a lot of records, literally thousands of records uh, are on these devices for that type of stuff. But without uh, a tie back to the actual uh, electronic medical record, then there's no way to uh, associate this to a specific individual. So in my opinion, uh, not much of a, a PII or HIPAA related problem at this point. So now that we know that it's network information, what could somebody do with that? What would an attack look like from a research perspective? So uh, in my opinion, uh, you could actually, with the uh, SSID, um, we could trace that back through Wiggle, who owns it. Uh, and now I have the WPA pre-shared key. All I have to do is go to that organization. And now I can log into their biomedical network. Um, now, now I had I, and recently I had a I, I had a question from somebody. They're like, "Well, then it's basically just to target a chance. I have to buy a device, figure out who it belongs to, and if it happens to be in California and I'm in Maine, what good's that?" Uh, and then I mentioned to him, "Well, you can also go online and search through all these used devices uh, and all the pictures, and search for uh, things like uh, uh, hospital names." Um, um, uh, calibration stickers that have the hospital name on it mm. and just buy the devices that are near you <laughs> save you from travel so there's usually enough data from photos and pictures of devices not all the time but uh, a number of the devices i bought still had the uh, calibration stickers with the hospital names and stuff still on them um, so you, you can narrow it down from a flip of a coin down to somebody within driving range if you want it but that doesn't mean there'll be data on there again. But if you buy one, it's broke. Uh, the chances are you're going to actually be able to get data because you know they weren't able to power it up and purge it. So somebody gets the SSID and a pre-shared key and they get on your network. How intrusive could they be on your network? And again, this goes back to the whole idea of not having a logical segmentation. So it's kind of interesting. So I did pen testing for a number, a number of years. I did it for over a decade. Um, I've, uh, I've pen tested probably upwards of 20 or 30 hospitals. Uh, in every, every one of those cases, the only thing I had was a network connection. I plugged into the network or connected in through Wi-Fi. In every, every one of those cases, I managed to steal every one of the patient's records for every patient at every one of those hospitals every time. Now, I haven't been a pen tester for about six years, but I think if you would sit down with current pen testers, you will probably find the exact same stuff. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, and it's all it's all about it. Now, it really comes. To, so at that point, you start thinking, oh, my gosh, we're all in trouble. But then it comes down to the organization's ability to uh, detect and respond to breaches. Because uh, breaches are a real thing. We see them every week. We see them with medical organizations all of the time. Um, sometimes uh, malware spread, you know, um, 
and, and it's bad. So then it comes down to, are you going to detect and respond to any kind of uh, reaction taking place on your network and do something about it? Um, that's where it comes down to, because if you're going to go, well, we're just going to never get breached. That's not possible. If somebody targets you, they can breach you. Uh, that's, that's a guarantee. It's all about how do we detect and respond quickly to stop somebody that would be nefarious that would gain access to your network. Because if you don't have the ability to detect and respond uh, to what they're doing, they will get the data. It's, it's, it's a matter of you gain a foothold, you escalate your rights, you move lateral until you find what you're looking for, and then you take it. Um, so to recap, what are the important points from the talk that Daryl gave at Sector? Generally, I think we've covered everything pretty good. Um, like, like I said, um, and I reemphasize that it's critical that medical organizations, uh, besides besides handling uh, all of their technology from cradle to grave, uh, and think about how that's going to be uh, bought, managed, and disposed of. They also need to think about how their uh, two things: segmentation segment their their biomedical critical care networks off and uh the third thing is that they want to be able to have proper solutions in place to help them detect and respond to anything taking place on their network that shouldn't be taking place on the network whether someone would breach something whether a malware had landed on their network whatever the case may be to have uh, solutions for detecting processes and procedures in place for how we're going to react if something does happen. I'd like to thank Daryl Hyland for coming on the show and talking about his presentation at Sector 2023. Medical devices aren't alone. OT devices exist in a lot of different areas. We need to be looking at the whole life cycle of these devices, and we need to stop thinking about them as being inaccessible. Really, I mean, there needs to be more access management going on. You can't just have a device sitting out there and expect it not to be hacked or breached. Unfortunately, that's the world we find ourselves living in these days. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. Hey, I have some great conversations coming up with the rise of bots, the threat from China and Vietnam, and more research on the dark web and ransomware. Subscribe today. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, buy-for-all secure. The makers of Mayhem, an application security testing solution you can try for free at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi.